grab a cold drink because this is going to be a, a very unique adventure. I finally connected with a um, uh, placement agency as I connected with several placement agencies. And they um, asked me, are you aware that there was a warrant out for your arrest? <laughs> Which I said, uh, clearly no. <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am Megan Henry, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Oliver. How are you tonight, Oliver? Doing pretty well. How about you? Good. So this week, we have on Daryl Sanchez, who he is the director of claims for a TPA that handles a long-term care facility claims. Uh, so I'm interested to talk to him, not just because of what he does, but as you know, our, our listeners will find out, he went through a very uh, interesting experience with a, uh, his identity being stolen that really affected his um, ability to find work and just make a living. And it's, I, I thought it was super interesting and you know, I think you would agree. So um, without further ado, let's bring him in. Good evening, Daryl. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Defense Never Rest. So happy to have you. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here, and, and I appreciate the service that you provide to individuals who like to tell their story. So I'm very, very grateful for this opportunity. I, and I, I think I, I've said this to, to you before, and I've said it's, it's like the most fun part of my job, I think, is doing this because it's it's just great to talk to people and hear, you know, everyone's journeys and where they how they got where they are today and um I'm, I'm so happy that now I get to do it often. Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity. So, yeah, they don't let me do it. Very, very much, so. <laughs> for, for good reason. <laughs> That's why I like to have Oliver on, though. He, he adds good quips in the, in the, during, the, during the podcast, so he's always a, a good co-host. Nice. <laughs> I'm like so, Andy Richter. <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> Daryl, just to get us a little started, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? I know, you know you're the director of claims for a TPA handling long-term um, care nursing claims, but you know, for, for those just tuning in, you know, what is it exactly that, you're, that you do on a, you know, on a global and day-by-day -day basis? Well, to be sure, a claims director does just that, uh, directs claims uh, and the day-to-day -day operations of the uh, claims department. I found myself over the past year sort of filling two spaces, being not only the claims director, but also working as the claims manager, uh, because just a month after I arrived, our claims manager, we had two of them that worked under uh, beneath me, well, not beneath me, but certainly worked um, um, in relation to me. Um, one of them left, so I had to take on the responsibilities, but I found it actually to be very rewarding and uh, informative because I was able to learn a lot more about the ins and outs of long-term care, which admittedly I was frankly, rather alien uh, to uh, before I did it. So doing that plus doing the claims uh, directing uh, part was really a, you know, an education. And so, but to your question about uh, what a claims director does is just managing the day-to-day -day operations and making sure that individuals are performing, making sure that uh, goals are being met, making sure that uh, whatever problems that need to be elevated from the adjuster to a supervisor to a claims manager and cannot be resolved will come to me before it goes to my boss, who's the vice president of claims. How like how has the role been different? Like as you said, of being a claims manager is is very different. So, were, were had you ever had the role of claims manager before? I had not had the role of claims manager before. Uh, admittedly, this was my first opportunity to work in management. 
um, in a claims department. I certainly had done you know, sort of senior level work working uh, in claims in times past, but um, the claims manager role as it differs from claims director is where a claims manager is truly involved in the day-to-day -day activities of you know uh, managing adjusters and uh, managing the workflow, whereas the claims director uh, sees not only that claims manager, but the work of other claims managers as well, and try to correlates them and make sure that they're all functioning properly. And, uh, you know, dealing with the, shall we say, the higher level things such as coverage issues, uh, such as uh, client issues, such as, you know, elevated complaints, uh, things like that, Department of Insurance litigated matters, and that sort of thing. Now, do you find it, is it hard to kind of sidestep both those, those roles? In, your, in a way, you're uh -huh. almost managing yourself. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, well, that's one of the, the benefits is I am managing myself, but uh, I know not to take unnecessary days off. Um, no, I find that uh, especially being given the opportunity of, you know, having not worked in long-term care before, uh, being exposed at both levels, you know, at the day-to-day -day operations and the larger policy-driven uh, uh, position that uh, really has provided a, a nice balance of being able to understand exactly how, how the uh, process works, particularly as regards to long-term claims. And so uh, I actually found it to, to be, you know, now I want to say easy. Easy is not the word I want to use, but I found it quite manageable. Yeah. No, don't ever say easy. Oh, Someone's going to no. hear it. <laughs> no, easy, easy is not when a word I would about, use. Go when ahead. you're talking about uh, long-term care, just so we're, we're clear, we're talking about like uh, like nursing homes and assisted living facilities, that, that sort of thing? Exactly. You know, thank you, uh, because I wouldn't want people to confuse it with long-term disability. That seems to be something of, of a confusion with some who are not familiar uh, with it, particularly in, uh, claimants uh, who file claims. Um, yeah, what we deal with is long-term care insurance, whether it be in a skilled nursing facility, assisted living, or home care. And, um, you know, what makes it interesting for us right now, not only as a result of, of what's happening with COVID, and I know we'll be talking about that shortly, but just the whole um, industry itself, uh, the, the um, industry of skilled nursing and assisted living, uh, these are fairly recent creations. They didn't exist 20, 30 years ago when this product first developed. Um, this product uh, developed uh, sometime in the, like the mid-1980s. And as a result of that, there have been changes of how senior care, or shall we say elderly care, has come about. It really has, has grown. Um, but our policies are such that they were written in a time where there was primarily only nursing homes. And so uh, we find ourselves uh, dealing with a lot of uh, individuals who you know, want coverage for one particular thing, but the policy is very specific as to what it covers. And uh, that's where, you know, shall we say some diplomatic finesse has to come in, in terms of my abilities, such as they may be. Now for, I, I, I've handled, I guess, more nursing home claims, but you know, what are the type of bulk of claims that you, you see come through the long-term care facilities? Uh, um, well, we have, you know, we work as a as a third party administrator, we deal with uh, several companies and some companies have primarily home care claims and some have um, facility claims. And that could be there either be um, assisted living, nursing home, and depending on jurisdiction, because we actually operate nationwide, um, different states or different jurisdictions will have different names for um, assisted living, such as residential care facility, adult congregate living facility, um, home plus in certain states. And so being able to uh, you know, traverse the language uh, from a statutory uh, perspective uh, is, is certainly one challenge uh, to what we do. Well, yeah, because the, I mean, it changes so much state 
by state and there's a lot of regulations um, mm -hmm. and you have to really have someone who is really knowledgeable about like the specifics for each state. It's not, it's not a one size fits all approach by any means. That's the truth. That's the truth. But what we guide ourselves by is the terms of the policy, because you know, as the administrators, uh, you know, we're certainly uh, essentially adjudicating based on someone else's paper. You know, somebody else has written the policy and we are just administering uh, to the terms of that. Sometimes it, it doesn't always work the way the client would like to think they would. Because long-term care specifically is a relatively new industry, as I mentioned, certainly a lot younger than workers' comp or even auto. And so those areas, you can imagine that uh, case law is pretty well established in terms of uh, policy interpretation and so forth. But long-term care, it still continues to evolve uh, because it's a relatively new product. And because of that, yes, there are challenges when you look from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in terms of um, you know, what the regulations may say versus what the policy says. And so, and, and you had mentioned that you hadn't worked in long-term care before, before your pr current company. So it, what, what were you working in before you made it over to, to this company? <laughs> I, I, I hesitate only because I wouldn't want to my, my job that I had prior to this uh, be an, an indication of my abilities to do my job. But um, that actually will you know, relate to the ID theft that you and I had talked about. But the job I had before this, ironically, I was working as an operations distribution manager for a publication company. Uh, okay. I worked well for a newspaper <laughs> um, <laughs> for a brief period of time. I know it, it stuns everyone. <laughs> well, so wait, so, wait, wait. wait. I, I don't want to gloss over <laughs> what I just heard here. I heard something about ID theft here. This sounds fascinating to me. Oh goodness! So, so, all right, you got you got to at least give me give me some tidbit. Here. Yeah, let's talk about the ID theft. We can get back into claims in a little bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Well, like this sounds much more interesting. It it is all connected, and I will tell you this. Uh, one thing I I, I want to make clear is that I, I I labored over how I want to present this uh, simply because one can get bogged down in the nuances because there was so much to it. Um, this was not a traditional ID theft that you may hear about where somebody you know got my credit card or, or something like that. The circumstances are are quite unique, and if you'd like to hear the story, uh, I'll do my best to <laughs> offer you the you know the highlights of it. I think us um, and everyone listening wants to hear the story. Yeah. Well then. Come on. Sit back, grab a cold drink, because this is going to be a, a very unique adventure. Um, and it relates to claims. And I'll tell you how. Um, prior to um, living in Colorado, um, my family, my wife and daughter and I, we lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, after having moved from California. Pittsburgh, yeah, go Pirates. Um, so we were in California. And at that time, I was working for uh, an auto liability carrier. And I was doing uh, all right. I'd been there for a number of years, but I felt like I had sort of, you know, peaked in terms of what I can do at that place. And at the meantime, I was also teaching um, because that really was, I felt my passion still remains in being a, a, of an educator, I would call myself. But um, I worked at an insurance company and the dates are important here because you know, it's strange how these things kind of move all together. Um, in the year 2017, Gosh, that sounds so long ago. But um, in the year 2017, my wife and I had decided that because of some, um, you know, just the cost of living in, in California, particularly in Los Angeles where we lived, the whole quality of life issue really compelled us to reevaluate what we wanted to do because we had a daughter who was in school. I had very little confidence in the local school district that we had decided that we were going to just, you know, heed the call of adventure. 
and uh, and move across country. And so between the beginning of 2017 towards, you know, around September, we were making efforts to move. We were going to pack up everything. And I need to point out that I had never left California. That's to say, I never lived anywhere else. I was born and raised in California. All my family, my social network was there in California. And I had this job, um, you know, for 10 plus years. But we decided if we were going to do this, this was going to be the only time to do it. And so we seized the opportunity. We packed our goods, you know, we loaded up the truck and we headed out of Beverly to speak. Well, as I'm making this transition, unbeknownst to me, and this is where the uh, excitement begins, unbeknownst to me, somebody... I don't know who will call him a perpetrator um, was creating some sort of problem at a government facility in Los Angeles. And when the individuals um, people called the police on him, he gave my name, Daryl Sanchez. Um, the police officer asked for his ID. He had no ID. Police officer asked for a social security number. He gave a social security number that was not mine, but somebody else's a date of birth. That was also not mine yet a third person. And so the police officer proceeded to look in the uh, California law enforcement database uh, for the name Daryl Sanchez. Well, I come to find that there are apparently nine Daryl Sanchez's in California, and mine was the top one. So without much more than just the name, he associated my information with this perpetrator. And it really wow. was as simple as that. And, and I must question the competency of, of this police <laughs> officer. And I, I mean, I can't put it any simpler. Because, you know, as, as the story progresses, this happened in March of 2017. I was completely unaware of it. So while he identifies this individual as Daryl Sanchez, he finds, well, Daryl Sanchez has no wants and no warrants. Well, of course I don't, because I don't have any wants or warrants. <laughs> so he uh, does a pat down on the gentleman, finds that he has a controlled substance. So he writes the gentleman a ticket. Um, but because Daryl Sanchez has no warrants, he cuts the guy loose. So the guy identified as Daryl Sanchez, walks off with a ticket to appear in court sometime in August. Um, for all we know, this guy could be an ax murderer. He could be one of on FBI's 10 most wanted list. But ultimately, the police officer let him go thinking he was me. So now, as I'm proceeding forward again, this was in March 2017. I have no idea this has happened. I've made my decision to leave California and move to Pittsburgh because I believe that we're going to find opportunities. I mean, I have my law degree. I have insurance experience. I've been an instructor at a, um, a college in Los Angeles. I felt it would be fairly easy. Well, I got there, I think it's September 4th, 2017. Could not find work to save my life. Applied in a number of places. Could not find it. Always told they went in some other direction or whatever the case may be. And my wife and I were struggling because we thought this was going to be a fairly, if not smooth transition, a manageable one. But the fact that I could not find work and I was away from my entire social network. And a week after being there, my wife got into a, a car accident and told our vehicle. Fortunately, she was fine, but our only source of transportation had now been gone. And we lived in a part of, of of Pittsburgh. And when I say Pittsburgh, that's the reference point. But we actually live 19 miles south of Pittsburgh in a small town called Elizabeth. I mean, and it was a small town. You know, uh, the, the joke is that they had to widen the main road just to put a white line down the center. That's how small the town was, like maybe a thousand people. So far removed from, from anything that looks like civilization, especially since we came from Los Angeles. So I'm going through September, October, November, not finding work and not understanding why and trying to figure this out and thinking maybe this was a whole huge mistake that we're out in the middle of, of, of a place that's very alien to us. And uh, the one thing I will say about uh, Pennsylvania, it is very different from California and Los Angeles. 
I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's almost like a foreign country. You know, the only, the only saving grace was that uh, they spoke English and took American currency. But other than that, it really was like a different place altogether. And so, the Steelers. And the Steelers, of course. Well, you've got to have, it's in the DNA out there, without, without a doubt. Everyone was a Steelers fan. Or Kansas City, I found. Some people like Kansas City out there. Um, surprising. So it wasn't till around March of 2018, again, being without a work, living, you know, far off in the, you know, nether region of the United States, that um, I finally connected with a um, uh, placement agency as I connected with several placement agencies. And they um, asked me, are you aware that there was a warrant out for your arrest? <laughs> Which I said, uh, clearly no. And they basically you didn't, did you didn't say, that, yes, I'm on the run. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, know, I, you know, I perhaps that would have been a better story if I had told them, but um, it was they because you know you fill out the application and you do a background check. And I had submitted to several background checks out there to a number of places, including insurance industries, academic institutions, law firms. And I suspect what had happened was that they had run my background, they found a, 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 um, <laughs> a red flag, and they decided not to hire me. Now, whether or not they had to disclose that to me or not, I don't know. But one thing is certain is that at least two employers declined to give me a job opportunity because of this warrant that was out for my arrest. And as I find out about it, I quickly call some friends of mine back in L.A. who work for the DA's office and come to find that, yeah, this uh, warrant had my name, my last address, my birth date, my social security number. And I'm sitting there going, how is that possible? There is a doppelganger out there. I almost felt like Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> Like there's another person out there trying to set the stage for, you know, my ultimate demise. So what I'd found out and talking to a friend of mine that I went to law school with who did criminal law, that, uh, yeah, there was, in fact, a warrant out for my arrest with my name on it for possession of controlled substance. What had happened was apparently I was to go to court based on a ticket that was written in March of 2017. Uh, in August, I was supposed to uh, attend a court. Well, guess what? Daryl Sanchez didn't appear at that hearing or at that arraignment. So a warrant was immediately issued for my arrest and it was uh, uploaded in the court system on September 1st. I arrived in Pennsylvania on September 4th. So you can see how someone may be a little suspicious saying, oh, this gentleman is on the run from the law in California, you know, trying to hide in, in, in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And if you wanna hide, Pennsylvania is perhaps a good place to hide. So, so there I was, uh, you know, not having, you know, being depleted of resources, not having any idea how I'm going to do this. And so fortunately, I had some good friends that, that assisted me in basically saying, okay, well, you've got to come back to California. I have to make an appearance because I actually have to, you know, enter a plea. And so set a, a hearing date for April of 2018. And uh, I flew out there on my own expense. And I had a heart to heart with my uh, friend who was, who acted as my attorney. And he basically said, I have no idea what the judge is going to do. The judge may not believe you. The judge may remand you. The judge may put you in jail. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll just have to see what comes about. But fortunately, we were able to get the police report from the uh, agency that uh, ticketed this individual. Uh, the police officer, and I'm going to be frank, did a very poor job. Uh, this, this, this bordered on incompetency uh, with regards to what the officer did. He didn't take a picture of the individual. He didn't offer any identifying information of the individual. And so we have no idea what this individual looked like or who he was. All we know is that the police officer got my name from the uh, California Law Enforcement Data Bank and associated it with him. Now, at the time of this gentleman being ticketed, fortunately, I was actually in court. And so my appearance was on record at two courts 
at that very moment where apparently I was being arrested. That's what saved me. So I was able to yeah. present that to the DA and beforehand, ultimately the DA dismissed all the actions on top of the fact that the witnesses that apparently saw me at this facility where this uh, incident took place, uh, they didn't appear in court. So the matter was dismissed and the judge essentially gave me a get out of jail free card, which basically said, you know, do not arrest this individual on this warrant. So that at least resolved the ID issue. Uh, but it did not resolve my, my economic issue or it did not resolve my job issue. But as a result of getting that resolved and my proof of that, I was then able to find gainful employment uh, in Pittsburgh and uh, kind of worked my way back, you know, worked my way back to working in claims. And uh, because it was still a situation that we still deal with in certain respects financially, that uh, a friend of mine who lived in Colorado said, I've got a friend who's a publisher of the local newspaper out here and is looking for somebody with a legal mind that has a legal background to help solve some problems with regards to their distribution. I interviewed, they liked me. They said, would you come out to Colorado and uh, work uh, as the uh, director of distribution for our publication? I said, absolutely, get me out of here. And so we packed up again and my wife and daughter and I moved from there to Colorado where I was. And uh, it was a great learning experience working in publication because uh, I got to use a lot of my insurance skills, the ability to negotiate because I dealt with a lot of independent contractors, uh, ability to analyze, look at data, um, offer assessments with regards to that. And so it really was to me, it was almost like um, being paid for graduate work because um, I was obviously drawing a salary and learning a whole new industry, which is very, very interesting to me. Um, but clearly it was not the industry I should be in. Uh, I long to be back in claims. Um, as I mentioned, I feel like I'm an educator at heart. And I think that being in, in claims is an opportunity to educate people uh, on policies, on understanding policies. So an opportunity presented itself where they were looking for a claims director. Um, I spoke with the, the recruiter, uh, long and short of it, and you know, to make a long story short, and I think that's probably too late at this juncture. But the fact of the matter is they liked me, interviewed, and uh, you know, so began my uh, my uh, um, my time um, at the long-term care uh, uh, you know, company. Well, wow, that that's way worse than when somebody <laughs> stole my identity and ordered <laughs> HBO and home team sports on Comcast. Yeah, I mean, when, I, when I you <laughs> when uh, you found out or figured out what had happened, I mean. I know what I'd be like, what were you thinking? Like, were you like, is this a joke? Like, like <laughs> it, it really, I mean, it had such an impact on, on your, your whole life. Like uh, for, I just, I, I'm almost speechless about it because I just can't, can't imagine. <laughs> that I'm still standing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I, I will say this. It was extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I, I can't put it in, in any of the simpler words. It was extraordinarily difficult to, uh, again, having left everything I knew in California, trying to start a new life. And this one particular thing just, you know, shattered everything. And to your question of how I felt, I, I absolutely didn't know how to feel, you know, because I couldn't imagine, well, clearly it wasn't me. But as far as the court is concerned, because I'm familiar with courts, as far as they're concerned, it is you. And I've got to find a way to sort of, you know, clear my good name. And what is it that, that Shakespeare says? He who steals from my wallet steals trash, but he steals my good name, you know, steals, really steals from me. And uh, I really was sort of at a loss as a finger what to do. But one thing I knew I had to do is I had to resolve it, whatever that right. meant. 
And so again, through the, uh, the good graces of, of individuals that helped me along, um, I was able to get it resolved. But at that moment, yeah, you can't help but think that there's some sort of cosmic order conspiring against you just to make it difficult. Um, yeah. but can you imagine one- had you, had you stayed in California and been arrested having to fight that from, from behind bars? <laughs> that is what I think about sometimes. It's almost, it's yeah. almost amusing because I was still traveling to California on occasion when I could to see my family because my entire family, my brothers and sisters uh, and my mother still live back in California. And yeah, that occurred to me that if I had just been pulled over for a moving violation, they would have looked me up. They would have seen there was a warrant and they would have arrested me. And I would have been, what are you guys doing? What are you talking about? And to have to fight that from the inside, Lord knows what could have happened. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Imagine those are the, some guy, things that could... you know, the real perpetrator really is named Daryl Sanchez. It's just not you. Well, and you know, who knows what this guy's ultimate. name is? <laughs> I don't know if it would be the ultimate, but um, what I have found and, and, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, this, uh, if you wish, is that what it did for me and to me as an individual, because I recognize that you can't control certain things. Uh, there may be uh, things happen. And, and I also should point out that, you know, horrible things have happened to people. People have lost loved ones. People have lost limbs. People have really gone through real tragedy. And I cannot compare what happened to me with that level of tragedy. But it definitely is something that happened to me. It's something I had to develop a perspective upon. Because I couldn't walk around with the animosity and, and loathing that I had for a period of time for not so much the perpetrator, but the police officer and his absolute incompetence. Um, and I had to work through that. And I, I really had a lot of anger uh, about that. There's no doubt about it. But I recognize ultimately that these things are going to happen and not to be so you know, casual about it, but it's something you have to work through. You know, things are going to be handed to you. You've got to find a way to, to work through them. And, and that's what I revealed about myself because I learned, you know, I learned, shall we say, in that trip to, to Pennsylvania and the ID, I learned less about the world, but I learned more about myself. And I think that was something worth taking out of it. Yeah. I'm getting an idea here for an app on a phone, <laughs> like I alibi, where <laughs> you can like, can be tracked using your phone and you could be like no man what me right here see i patent that i have official rights to that that you know well but again I, I just think of how how fortunate though you were that you had court appearances that day yes i mean think about it, there's de- some days that you might have to well these days you might have court appearances but you're at home but at the time, there's, you, you, there might have a day that you have court appearances and you might go a week without being in court. So it's very fortunate that you were able to track your location in a very concrete sense at that, that oh, time. Yes. Because, I mean, that, that's almost like the shining light was looking down on you. I, I, I would have like, cried tears of relief, I think. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I, 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 was, I was weeping a little at the, the conclusion of it when you know I was released when the judge basically said, clearly it's not you. And the matter was dismissed. Yeah, I mean, just the mental exhaustion of having carried that uh, for as long as I did, you know, not only for myself, but for my family and knowing what it did to us economically. I mean, it really, you know, took us into a very difficult place. And, um, you know, I I just uh, I think about it now and I think about it more, you know, not so much with a casual view, but just recognizing what I did through that process and how I got through that process and thinking that I would never be able to work anywhere again. You know, you think all kinds of horribles uh, when something like that happens because you don't know how you'll get out of it. 
you know, when something like that happens, which is beyond your control, you, you feel absolutely out of control. And, and so being able to reorient yourself and, and going through this process, which didn't happen like, you know, the very next day, I, I have to say, it's, it was a long drawn out process to just understand how I could be more responsible for myself about these things. Because, you know, uh, dragons are going to pop up and you've got to be able to meet the challenges, you know, depending on, on how you've oriented yourself. So that's certainly what I've learned from the process. So perhaps this officer did me a favor by allowing me to sort of shed my ego and, and reveal my humility to myself and, uh, and move forward. Well, I mean, that's certainly a, I think a very thoughtful approach to it <laughs> that, that, that shows many years of working through it. But did, did the judge show any, like, was the judge even apologetic? Like, I, I'm sorry that it, you had to go through this our bad. Yes. Like, I, mean. I, I will say that, that I, I received a great deal of sympathy from the um, deputy DA as well as the judge understand the circumstances because it was clearly evident, not only in terms of the you know, highly questionable information that the police officer indicated in his police report, but my own evidence in terms of actual you know, judicial records showing that clearly I was somewhere else some, doing something else uh, at the time. And uh, yeah, they, they, they were very sympathetic for the situation. But ironically, when I explained to the judge, once he you know, granted the dismissal and gave me my, if you will, get out of jail free card, um, I said, now, does this, you know, will this forever take care of it? And he just kind of shrugged his soldiers. He says, I don't know. You know the internet is what it is. And though no guarantees that it wouldn't pop up somewhere, somehow, some way. But for the purposes of, of the, you know, the court record, you know, I was cleared. Yeah. But uh, and from what, that moment forward, what happened forward, with the, the police officer? Oh, Where's yeah. he? <laughs> you know what? That is no of no consequence to me. He quit. Uh, it's a fair question. <laughs> Not but, good at uh, this job. Um, who, who knows? Who knows what what became of him? And and I'd found His I had last to name release Berman. <laughs> <laughs> Furman or Berman? <laughs> um, no. Um, Wasn't that yeah, a I, I, OJ? Oh yes. yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> true story. Uh, Christopher Darden was my professor when I was in law school. He was my uh, criminal procedure professor. And I found him to be a very, very human indi individual. He shared with me just stories of, of things when we were able to talk as, as a professor and student. So I actually found him to be uh, quite a pleasant individual, but it was not Furman. And, and to be sure, uh, the disposition of that police officer now is of no consequence to me. And, and I only say that after years of working through the frustration that I was left with as a result of decisions that other people had made. So I, I don't say that lightly. It, it, from the outside, it, it sounds like, like what you said, incompetence or mistake. It doesn't sound like a, a, like he had some conspiratorial mindset to screw you over. It just sounds like he was extremely sloppy. And Frankly, uh, yes. You know, I, I think yeah. it would give him too much to suggest that he had the capacity to think conspiratorially. Um, that, that'll be my aside for the police officer. Uh, I just think it was laziness. I, I think it was just the, the desire to move this along. But fact is fact. You know, the end result was me having to reorient my whole life uh, yeah. as a result of it, which was, you know, <laughs> quite therapeutic, to be honest with you. I'd probably get the, um, the order tattooed on a part of my body <laughs> that way. Well, yeah, to be sure, what I did is I, I took pictures of it, sent it to, to my, you know, my friend who's an attorney out here in Colorado, sent it to my wife, you know, put another in a safe deposit box, keep a photocopy with me, because you just never know. 
And uh, since that time, it has not uh, been a problem. And uh, you know, the humorous part about it is that moving forward, every job I went to, I had to disclose to them, well, be, under, be aware that uh, if you do a background on me, you're going to find that there's a warrant, but it's not me. And, uh, you know, well, um, the, that's one the way. To... Yes. What's that? So that's one way to make them remember you. Oh, to be <laughs> sure. The warrant guy. We yeah, like exactly. That. Exactly. And so uh, I'm happy to say it has not affected my ability to find gainful employment moving forward. But uh, it's almost like um, I don't know if you folks are familiar with Alan Watts. He was a Zen philosopher of the 1950s and 60s. He just tells the story of a Chinese farmer. And the summation of that story is that, you know, uh, the whole order of nature is an integrated system of immense complexities such that you cannot tell what is going to be the result of misfortune or the result of good fortune. And, uh, you know, live by that and, and move forward because things are going to happen as the bumper sticker says. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, backing up a little bit though, when you were a practicing attorney for, for quite some time. So what, what type of law did you practice? Well, admittedly, I wasn't a practicing attorney. I, I worked for an insurance company within their legal department, and I okay. actually represented. So I, I never practiced uh, as an attorney. I had the ability to teach, and I worked as a representative. I essentially represented the insurance company I worked for you know, whenever they were sued in court. Uh, but to that extent, I would certainly um, settle matters and uh, you know, present matters um, uh, for hearings. So we just did administrative – well, not administrative hearings, but we did hearings. So they're just a bench officer – and, uh, you know, evidentiary matters and, and things of that nature. But it was insurance, primarily. Insurance defense is what I did for 10 years okay. uh, when I worked for the insurance company in California. And, and it was after that point that that's when you and your wife decided, like, let's, let's make the big change and move out cross-country to beautiful land of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes. I mean, there were some things that came about. For example, um, my father-in-law that I was very close to, sadly, he died suddenly. Uh, on New Year's Eve, 2016. Yeah, 2016, because the next day was 2017. And that just, that, that, that certainly caused us to really think about our own mortality and uh, what we wanted to do. And I had been, like I said, at the company for a number of years. I felt like I had done everything I could at that company, wanting to do different things, but I did not want to do the same thing at a different company. I really wanted to you know, do something different. And we had talked about it. Even when I was in law school, we had contemplated moving to a different part of the country like back east. And I always wanted to, to experience that. And this seemed like the opportunity because I can tell you this, there would have been a number of reasons I could have talked myself out of it saying, no, 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 no. It's too much to do. Where you're at is where you're at. But uh, something told me, you got to make this move. You got to make this transition because if you don't, you know, no matter what happens, you're going to sit there and go, we could have done it but we did it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we're better than bruised as a result of it. But, um, you know, that was part of the transition, I suppose. Speaking of, as someone who lived in Pittsburgh, but is not from Pittsburgh, uh, I can tell you, if you don't have a network there, it's kind of a tricky place to just land and, and figure out stuff to do and where to go. Um, you know, I was lucky. I, I moved there to go to law school. And so, a third of the, the law school class or so were native Pittsburghers, you know, mm -hmm. and um, or from the surrounding areas. And people are like, oh, you got to go here. We got to go do that. And so you, you got a social network built in that way. But I can't imagine just being like, I, uh, I'm going to go and try and find a job. Um, when I when I moved and was just trying to look for an apartment, um, 
I will tell you, it was a, uh, a bizarre, uh, very bizarre experience. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a limited budget, and by by that I mean no budget, and um, had some very questionable uh, uh, choices that I could have could have opted for. Luckily, I landed in a pretty pretty okay spot, but um, you know, I I. I I admire your tenacity to, to pack up and just move. And you weren't even in the city. You were in Elizabeth. I mean, yeah, we were in a, so. in a, I don't know if it's a suburb of Pittsburgh, but it was about maybe uh, 20 minutes from the uh, West Virginia border, uh, Southwest or yeah, Southwest of Pittsburgh, a real rural area, economically depressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Pittsburgh, to your point, I agree with you. Pittsburgh is, you know, has a metropolitan look, but a small town feel. Everyone seems to mm-hmm. know one another and you have to have a network. But, you know, we I've decided, you know, you have to be the fool before you can be the master. And so, you know, you have to take these opportunities. And I felt like, you know, that seemed to be the ideal time to take the opportunities. Whatever my conscience was telling me about, no, this is not a good idea. You know, but uh, I'm glad you I did didn't it. You didn't have anybody to help you order a Primanti's brother sandwich, you know, appropriately. <laughs> you just you have know, to be like, give me usual yes <laughs> everything with french fries what's the idea just french fries on all the I sandwiches don't, i don't know i don't get that but whatever well, it, um, it sounds like a giant stomach ache waiting to happen yes well I, all i would say about my experience with pittsburgh is that i'm glad i did it but i would not do it again yeah well i think that's point well taken <laughs> i think i think you had pittsburgh set up for you in the most unideal scenario imaginable and it already probably being a, a difficult, you know, venue to go into. And then you had all these extra circumstances going on. I, I, I don't blame you. I, I also thought about going to law school in, in Pittsburgh. And I remember I eventually decided that I wasn't going to do that because I didn't want to move there to be where I knew not a soul and I'd be completely on my own. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I like the school, yeah, but, but I don't it's know. LA. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it's Pittsburgh. It's not LA. Ed, so when you transitioned over to to work for this publishing company, I mean that had to also be such a like a shock. Like one, you're probably thrilled to have a, a very concrete uh, em- employment position after everything that you've been through for the the prior few years. But but such a change from what you had been doing for so, so long. So how was the adaptation to, you know, that new role for you? I tell you what, who helped me with it was the publisher who was my boss and he was extraordinarily uh, kind and recognizing that I had no experience in publishing, but that's why he brought me in. And he referred to the gentleman who wrote the, uh, the book on Nike, uh, the shoe company, how whenever a problem developed within the company, they would bring in attorneys or accountants to solve the problem because these were analytical individuals. So with that, he had the idea, this publisher, to hire somebody who had a law background to solve problems within the industry. And he said, you know, you're new here, so you can ask all kinds of questions. No one will think you're foolish if you're asking fundamental questions because you know nothing about it. And everyone knows that you know nothing about it, but that's why you're here to know about it. And that, that was a great encouragement to me uh, to be able to go in there and recognize that I'm not expected to know everything, you know, but it certainly was my duty to figure out, you know, where the problems lie to go ahead and implement some sort of efficiency system that would help me you know, move the publication distribution system along. So that was a great, uh, uh, great learning experience for me as well. Well, and I just think it's just an interesting 
like an interesting place to work and also like an interesting thing to have on, on your resume because it's just it's so different from you know what what at least like Oliver and I do on a day-by-day basis <laughs> like I mean it's you're working more with like the creative mind so to speak versus like us more analytical you know run the course type type situation so I don't know I can see there's be a lot of challenges there as well definitely a lot of challenges just learning you know a whole different uh business model, if you will, uh, yeah. understanding how it works, how things relate to one another. I mean, certainly put me in a, in a room with an insurance policy and a lawsuit and I can figure out things, but stick me in a room of, you know, 40,000 pieces of, uh, of publications that need to be sent out within a certain amount of time. And that requires logistics. I mean, that really yeah. required a, a different way of thinking about things and problem solving. Uh, one thing I will say that I found interesting is that we distributed a number of newspapers in the uh, um, Northern Colorado area. So I got to see headlines of not only national publications, but regional publications. And it always struck me as interesting how the same news story could be, if you will, spun in different ways. And that's, that's all I'll say about that. But yeah. uh, that, that, that was interesting. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that's interesting as well, because it I mean, it would be such a stark contrast, be like, this one's going here and this one's going here. And it's, a, you yes. know, it's the same story. <laughs> yes, yes. And being able to, to actually look at the papers is very interesting. So where you're at now, what are the, the, the sort of the typical types of, not that any claim is typical, you know, in the 30,000 foot view, but what, what sort of claims are you mostly facing and, and how has that changed since you first joined to now, if at all? Well, because elderly care uh, continues to grow because obviously the population continues to get older. Um, you know, we have our set of you know, facility uh, claims as well as our, our share of uh, home care uh, claims. Um, but I think you're making reference to COVID and maybe the impact that has had, if I understood you correctly. So, um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's probably the biggest uh, sort of sea change that it, almost everyone has, has faced. No so doubt. That, that's no doubt. Um, well, I would think that, uh, quite frankly, well, well we, certainly we saw a decrease in claims. I, I will tell you that across the board. I think all insurance industries saw a, a relative decrease in, in claims, uh, particularly auto, which essentially dried up. I know in California uh, that uh, that's what happened because people stopped driving. And so there are fewer accidents. And for us, because there was a concern of putting an elderly individual into a facility where the propensity of, of catching COVID was actually quite high, there was a natural reluctance to get people to, uh, to put their loved ones in a facility. So you saw a decrease in claims in that regard. On top of home care claims, people didn't necessarily want some individual who was not a, a family member coming in and providing home care because, again, the potential exposure. So we saw a decrease in claims uh, across the board, no, no doubt about that. Um, but at, at the same time, we saw individuals who were hoping to seek, uh, shall we say, some sort of uh, innovative view of the policies when it came time to um, asking for certain things. Uh, for example, one of the things that you may find in a long-term care policy is what's called a, an alternative plan of care, or what's referred to as an APOC. And what that is, is an individual could seek some alternative plan of care that means that they can get treatment at a different type of facility that would otherwise be covered or get some other type of treatment that would otherwise be covered, depending on whether or not the doctor has prescribed it, depending on whether we agree and whether or not it's economically feasible or the most cost effective uh, method of, of doing that. And, you know, as with any insurance policies, these APOC plans are very specific in terms of when they're allowed. And more often than not, an individual has to already be on claim 
before we can allow them to have an alternative plan of care. Uh, but some individuals think that they can start with that out the gate. Case in point, somebody who has only a nursing home policy only, uh, but they want to have somebody come into their house because they don't want to take their loved one to a facility, they would ask to have something uh, considered under the APOC. But the policy written as it is uh, requires the individual to at least be on claim. That means to be in a nursing facility and getting covered care before we could even consider an alternative plan. So those are the types of things that, that have come about uh, you know, as a result of, of COVID. And, and you and I had talked about this um, early on, but, or when you and I spoke a little bit while, a while ago, but I mean, your company's in California and, and you're physically located a, in Colorado. Um, and I think when you first came on, you had, you know, an agreement that you, I think I, I might misstate this, but I think you were in California for a chunk of time and then uh, spending like your long weekends in Colorado and then, and then COVID hit and now suddenly then you were just in Colorado all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh, when I first accepted the job, there was uh, concerns because I was in fact living here in Colorado and I accepted the job under the, under the expectation that my family would in fact move out to California. Um, but what happened was uh, I was commuting back and forth. My daughter started school here. It became a bit much to consider my wife and daughter who had just moved from Pittsburgh to Colorado to move back to California. And to be candid with you, the problems that we left in California with regards to the, uh, you know, the quality of life issues, they were still there. Nothing had changed. As a matter of fact, they had gotten worse. But I had decided, no, I was going to stay because I really enjoyed the job. I really enjoyed the challenge. And so I became a commuter. You know, between LA and Denver, uh, hopping on a plane like every other weekend and, and doing that. And that was just, that was frankly the gig um, that I did. And, you know, I, whatever you want to call it, because I had nothing to do with COVID, but the fact that everything, you know, uh, everyone was quarantined and had to essentially stay at home, that just obviously worked out for me. And I want to be careful how I say that because I wouldn't want to think that I took some sort of horrible advantage of something that has really impacted people. But that's what happened because everyone was now working remotely. I was compelled to work remotely. And, and I've been here ever since for a year now. Well, I mean, I will say, I think, um, and I've talked about this a lot with, with people that, you know, COVID has, it's been, you know, crappy, but I think it has opened up people's eyes that the traditional, you know, you have to be in the office with FaceTime, uh, five days a week model is people are walking away from realizing you don't really need that, need that all the time. That's not to say that having FaceTime and being in the office and being collaborative with your, your colleagues isn't important, but the requirement to have it, I think is kind of becoming less, less, less and less important. Well, I wonder about that because as you and I had discussed before, one of the concerns that I have uh, as a claims director who wants to ensure not only the, that production remains, but that, you know, the quality of our individuals, that people remain, uh, you know, positive and that people are encouraged about their work. Um, you know, there's obviously camaraderie that forms when people are in an office. Uh, there's being able to engage in light banter with one another and just sort of keep each other informed in the very communal environment of an office. But now that we are, you know, now relegated to our homes as a result of what has happened, 
Um, my concern is that we're losing our communication skills in that regard. You know, the nonverbal yeah. cues that we get to. I, I just found in my own experience that uh, walking around a, a claims floor and seeing names and seeing how individuals decorate their their yeah. cubicle, you, you you associate certain nonverbal indicators with the person, and if you don't see that all the time you frankly forget their names. You kind of forget who you're talking to, especially when you're only talking on the phone all the time. You forget, did I tell so-and-so this? I don't remember because I was on the phone with somebody. Being in a room physically and talking with individuals and, and sharing that experience, I think that does tend to inhibit our communication style, but I think it forces us to be more communicative in other ways, perhaps being more of a good listener, you know, yeah. at, in case in point, as we are here uh, listening to one another. So <laughs> certainly a variety of changes. I'm hopeful that it, it makes people more careful in how they communicate with email because before email was sort of, it, while it was still a staple, it was less uh, less central to communications. You could just, you know, stick your head out of your office or over your cube and say, hey, what, what do you think about this? Or why'd you do that? Or something like this. And emails have historically been somewhat informal and at times can be terse. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, because it is central to how we deal with one another now that maybe maybe you give it a second read before you hit send. Agreed. Um, uh, agreed. Knowing what I'm, you're, I'm you're guilty saying. of some of that myself. So I, I've been trying to to improve on that. Um, well, remember, uh, there's the, no tone. Oh. Yeah. The, the E in email means eternal. So <laughs> it'll always be around. So you want to be cautious about what you put in print. So as for like your own, um, your own department and, you know, since now everyone's remote, how, you know, are you doing anything different or addition in addition to what you normally do to make sure your department has that, you know, camaraderie that you still feel like part of a team, even though you, everyone is in their separate spaces and, you know, you're in Colorado. <laughs> Sure. Well, yeah, one thing that we do is we have weekly meetings. Uh, I make it a point to, to speak to the supervisors that I, I manage um, every other day, if not every day. And we have regularly scheduled meetings, team meetings, Zoom meetings, that sort of thing. So staying in contact with one another and recognizing that, you know, we can call one another if we have anything that uh, needs to be dealt with. And of course, part of the process, uh, at least for the purposes of our claims and moving claims along, we have regular meetings where we talk about specific claims. And so there's always a gathering of some sort on a weekly basis. Uh, but even in addition to that, I recognize that my very position as a claims director, that uh, I, I like to think it means something if I reach out to an adjuster just to ask how they are doing, because I'm genuinely in interested, especially when I know individuals are having challenges. Um, as we talk about COVID, one thing that, that comes to my mind is the realization that um, you know, there are three things that have come about as a result of this. Not only that it affected everyone worldwide, this was not just a regional situation that people had to accommodate, but everyone you spoke to, and I spoke to a number of individuals across the country, it affected everyone mm -hmm. without a doubt. It was going to change not only how we were going to operate our businesses, but how we were going to you know, deal with people. The second thing is that obviously a company is going to have to learn how to handle this new reality. And thirdly, the people that we work that uh, work for us, particularly our adjusters, you know, they have lives. They have families. They have children. They have now spouses who are now homeworking. They have to deal with their own 
lives as it affects this whole thing. So there, there are three levels that I think have to be, I had to be cognizant of to recognize that. And to the extent of trying to encourage individuals, uh, again, having weekly check-ins just to see how people are doing, because I know we have some single moms, we have some elderly individuals, we have some people that, you know, from a variety of different backgrounds. And it's, it's certainly not my place to get in their personal lives, but I recognize that they may have challenges and I want to be sympathetic towards that. You know, being a little bit more, shall we say, relaxed when it comes to work hours, you know, allowing a little bit more of freedom when they have to like be off the clock for a certain time to tend to their child's um, online work or whatever the case may be. So that's what I've done. I've tried to be more proactive about being more understanding about individual circumstances. I see that I'm like from my personal experiences, like you're. I feel a great amount of, I guess, just fatigue at the end of the day because the day is just, it, it's so much longer now because there's so much else going on that I have to deal with that I didn't have to deal with before. I mean, before COVID, I still worked from home four days a week, but I didn't have my kids here and I didn't have them on their school. So I didn't have to run up and down the stairs, you know, seven times a day <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to deal with whatever they're doing. And then your day just gets stretched out so much longer than it did when I traditionally would work from home and I got so much done. I was so productive. Now it's like these little broken pieces um, that you kind of have to push together. And like by, you know, the end of the day, I don't even know what happened. (laughs) I'm exhausted. True. True. Well, (laughs) when I was in Los Angeles, um, I was staying with my family because my family was still out there. My um, sister and my mom and so forth. Um, It took me two hours to commute into LA. And now I'm, you know, using that two hours to actually work. You know, my commute now is what, three minutes, you know, for the bedroom to the office. So it it certainly is loud, but you're right that it does expand your day because whereas you may spend time either, you know, kibitzing at the uh, water cooler or driving, you're now working and getting it done. So yeah, that's, that certainly has changed more time being spent in front of the computer. Yes, I know. I have, I find myself sometimes being like, I, I just, cut it off. Cause I, even though, cause it, sometimes I'm like, wow, I got pulled in this direction, this direction. And, and they're not directions like, oh, I got called to do this on a case. I got pulled in the direction. Cause like someone needed help on a test like, or they couldn't log into some class. So you get diverted for a little bit and then you have to get back into it. And then I find that I still have to like shut it down. Cause I'm like, we still need to have that chunk of time after work that you give mm. undivided attention to, to your family and because you can't always be that, you know, half here, half there, you have to give them some of that's that. True. And so then that, I think that's where for at least personally, where a lot of the exhaustion comes in, because you're like, you're all day, you're moving around in all these different directions. You're like, okay, now I need to cut it off. So I can actually devote some attention. And now I need to pick up later what I left off. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to do that. For me, it's, it's weird. My wife and I don't have kids. Yeah. And uh, we've been working from home for years now and um i'm now in my home during daylight hours which is a strange thing um you know before that i would leave in the dark and come home in the dark <laughs> so, it's strange to be in the house during a weekday and look outside and at the light out you know yeah, and you have, um, and you you have such quality time together now yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you one thing that I, I, I need to be more cognizant of is the fact that I don't get out as much because, you know, getting in a car, driving to work, you know, sitting in traffic, listening to the radio, it does allow you some time to decompress or kind of prepare yourself for the day. And then you get to the office and do your thing. But sitting in an office at home, sometimes I actually forget to go outside. 
you know, I could be sitting here and, you know, bright sunny day when I wake up in the morning and at night it's snowing. And it's like, where did the day go? Because I don't even take the time to do that. And I need to be more uh, aware of that because you can lose days and, and that's yes. not, that's not uh, healthy. You know, go out and get some sunlight. Just to, to close up a little bit here, you know, we've talked a lot about like your whole pr- you know, trajectory of your career and, and, you know, the, such as it is, yeah. (laughs) but you know, what, what else do you do outside of, you know, work and with your family? What, what, is there anything that any hobbies or passions that, that you have that you do on the side? I'm a musician. Really? I'm a musician. Yes. Love it. Uh, I was a musician. In fact, when I first uh, started playing, I started in, in like, gosh, at 10 years old playing drums. And that, that was, that was pretty fun because, you know, it was a little $25 set and I got in my garage and I would put on my headphones and put on my Beatle album and just listen, just play with it. But then from there, I actually became formally trained in, 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 in uh, being a musician. I played in jazz bands, concert bands and orchestral bands and so forth. And that was sort of the thing that I enjoyed doing. Then I learned to play guitar. So being a musician has always been something I've always enjoyed. It's always been a release when I was in college, didn't play so much. And then, of course, I I tell you what, music has such a um, connection to me. I think it does to everybody. A friend of mine says, when you're in a good mood, you listen to the melody. When you're in a bad mood, you listen to the words. And I think that's true because uh, one of my favorites is Steely Dan. I enjoy uh, their music. And when I was in Pittsburgh, I didn't want to listen to them because I didn't want to hear the new the good music when i was in such a, a sour mood but now things are, are looking better that um i've reinvested in the drum set and so that's what i do i've got a little music room i play music i i you know i write songs uh just for my own enjoyment but that's really you know something i, I enjoy doing that's my release you know having having a drum set and being able to get to playing and the fun thing about it is much like I did when I was 10 and getting a record and and putting it on I can now like you know digitize and pull up my favorite mix of songs on on YouTube and play along with it just like I used to so it's something I think that uh, Carl Jung talked about that circumambulation you find your youth as you get older so I I love it is that but is the room in that your music room is it soundproof or does everyone in your house get to appreciate your music when you play <laughs> you know what we because we're in colorado we have a finished basement and so okay. it's actually cinder blocks it's like a bunker and uh you know since it's been so long since i played drums i come to find that they actually have you know quiet drum heads they're these mesh heads that have they're, they're very um fine holes that they reduce the sound by 80 percent and they have cymbals like that as well so i could i could make all kinds of noise and it just sounds like you have the stereo on loud so i was thrilled to death to be able to actually play you know, uh, not so much a top volume, but uh, being able to uh, really play, you know, like I would play uh, without necessarily bothering the neighbors or bothering my wife or daughter. So, you know, we all have an arrangement. They understand music is important. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's- I wish I played more, though. I, I wish I, you know, because of COVID, there are not opportunities to play in clubs right. and things like that. And yeah. I will say this again referring back to pittsburgh my time out there one thing my wife and i did do because i couldn't find a job because she sings and i play guitar we yeah we played we actually uh, got a gig to play ironically at a senior center uh (laughs) and we played for you know about six weeks you know 125 dollars a week you know plus free drinks and uh yeah it was it was nice it was a fun thing to do 
in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. All the insurer you can drink. Yeah, I think you need to clarify what kind of drink was free. Is it apple juice? Well, you know, soft drinks of sort. No, actually, actually, this place was a beautiful resort. It was a senior, um, uh, senior like a townhome, but it was like a big community. They had a lunchroom that really looked like a cafeteria, like a restaurant. And they had the small uh, room that on Fridays they would turn into a quote unquote pub where they served beer and wine. And uh, yeah, we were the live entertainment. So we played for an hour and a half and uh, you know, they seemed to enjoy it and we enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, that was, that was one of the little fun things that, that we got to do. And, and uh, I'd love to be able to do that again when, when time allows and when uh, restrictions uh, you know, don't prohibit it. I love it. I love that your wife, your wife does it as well. I think that's, that's awesome. It's just a yes, yes. thing to do together. Yeah, she's a singer from way back. She she started just like I did, you know, when we were teenagers. The the love to just perform and and do something like that. So yeah, I'm happy about that. Now, is your is your daughter musically inclined as well? Is she going to be in yes. your band? Yes, she, she doesn't like my. Well, she's exposed to my music. I think out of out of necessity because you know, I'm always playing it. But yeah, she took uh, guitar, uh, and she's become very interested in playing the guitar. And frankly, I have learned from her because I've never actually taken a formal guitar class. I just taught myself. I picked up a guitar, grabbed a chord book, and, and it really just, frankly, came to me quite naturally, which I, I'm pleased about. For, for her, she actually took a class uh, in, in school, and uh, I was listening to her, and she showed me things. And that, that, that was impressive to me, that, that you know, my daughter was learning something. It's like, hey, I could learn from you. And so, yeah, she, she is musically inclined. She loves music, and she likes playing, but she won't play for us. You know, we ask her to play, and she's like, no, she shuns that idea. In fact, just uh, about a week ago, I bought her a banjo because she wanted the banjo. And it's like, great. You know, if you want to play musical instruments, I'm happy to support that. Oh, I love it. One of, one of our paralegals is a, uh, a musician, uh, and he's going to uh, yell at me if I don't ask you what, what kind of guitar you play. Because I think he has uh, quite a collection. Uh, he and I would be in good company because I have quite a collection. My first guitar was this little $10 knockoff guitar that I bought at a, at a swap meet in Los Angeles. But since that time, I've, I've acquired at least, and I don't mean to sound boastful, but like 11 guitars. I have, uh, you know, one of my favorites is a Gibson SG. He'll know what that is if you ask him, but, but a Gibson SG. Um, I also have a, um, which I recently just acquired, a, a Washburn 12th Street guitar. It's beautiful. I can play my uh, um, uh, Gordon Lightfoot uh, songs on it because uh, that's what I used to play when I used to play in, in clubs years and years and years ago. It was just me and my voice, my guitar and my voice. So I had to pick songs that were just basically guitar and voice, whether it be Jim Croce, Simon Garfunkel, James Taylor, some Beatles, that type of thing. But the guitars I have are, you know, I've got quite a few. I've got a Rickenbacker 12 string, which I never use, but I can't get rid of it because it's such a find. And um, I actually enjoyed finding old guitars and, and fixing them up. You know, to me, there's something about the patina on a used guitar. I, I'd much rather have a used guitar than a new guitar because a used guitar that's well-worn mm. is an indication that it's a, it's a good guitar because the- And you, the you might like the one that, that I've got. I don't play, it was my grandfather's, but it's a 1932 Gibson LG1. You need to hold on to that and put it in the glass case, you know, with a humidifier, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. That that sounds like an exceptional guitar. You know, I'd, I'd encourage you to get that worked out and never sell it, even if you don't play it. Don't no, no, it. He, he bought it used actually in uh, 1944, I believe. And he Amazing. paid $450 for it in 1944, which that's, he said was more than two years salary for him. Oh yeah. That, that's, that's a lot of money back then. No doubt about it. So that's, that's cool. That's cool. I, I'm very yeah. happy to hear. I don't play. Other, but, other musicians you know. out there. 
we'll keep it. So when people come over who do play, they will marvel at it. So I encourage you to keep it, you know, just make sure it keeps tuned yeah, and, and in a case. There you go, Oliver. There's your advice for today. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nickel's worth of free advice. <laughs> well, Daryl, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. To, ah, I can't even speak talking to you tonight. Um, and, you know, I, I, Thanks. Just thanks so much for coming on and sharing, you know, your experiences and, and your journey and, you know, really talking about your, your, albeit negative experience with the, with identity theft. But I mean, I, I really enjoyed listening to the story. It's just, I don't know. It's Boy, no, interesting. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to tell it. I, I was kind of reserved about whether or not how much I wanted to share, but frankly, you know, it's, it's a story. It's a story that I think people are, are intrigued by. And just, I will say as a final note that, uh, you know, you're going to ask me like how I got into claims. I actually started in claims at 18 years old as an ambulance driver. And perhaps that's a story for another time, but uh, that was my first job out of high school being a medical technician. And that, uh, that launched me into my illustrious career of, of claims handling. <laughs> but, um, I appreciate this time. So thank you so much, Again, I appreciate you, you know, talking to you both. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely.